to We Are History. I am Angela Barnes. And I'm John O'Farrell. Yay! We are doing an episode this week where we're just catching up with, it's the end of Black History Month. Um, so we're a little bit late with our history homework. Sorry. But we are getting there. We wanted to pick a story that was a very British story and sort of relevant today in Black British history. Raising a couple of kids in a South London state school. They did loads of Black history, but it was always Rosa Parks. It was always Martin Luther King. And it was always like, oh, racism is over there. You know, we're going to tell you about... Yeah, it doesn't happen here. Yeah. I don't know if that was the intention, but I think that was the sort of byproduct of it. So we're doing a story yeah. about British racism with a nod to that we stuff are, I was I mean, just talking about. Th- this is a story, John, I, I, I'd never heard of. I'd never heard oh, okay. about the bus boycott um, until you suggested it as an episode. Okay. Well, we're going back to the 1960s. And uh, although uh, we should tip our hats to Alabama in the 1950s. And if Angela's very mm-hmm. good, we'll go back even further because she likes a bit of background. And <laughs> uh, we might mention Ireland in the 1870s. Oof. But the Bristol boycott itself happened in 1963. Which, incidentally, John, yes. is the same year as the subject of our very first episode, which was oh. Profumo. Oh, yes. Um, but, of course, you know, a bit more public attention for Tory ministers and naked showgirls than for... <laughs> yes, than uh, worthy causes of, of uh, black the, men trying the to get their West job. Indian immigrants yes. in Britain, yes. Absolutely. So, bit of background. The 1948 Nationality Act granted the right to work and settle in the UK from the Commonwealth. So, Jamaicans and others in West Indies have been brought up, being taught that Britain was the mother country. But the reality was, of course, a lot less welcoming. I say Commonwealth. You know, Jamaica was still a British colony uh, in 1948 mm. they were taught at school that the queen was their queen and this was a mother country and uh, that uh, it was very much part of their identity we touched on this didn't we in our Harold Moody episode yeah that they were very much taught that they would be welcomed here as British citizens which they were yeah and then the reality wasn't the same yeah no, um, you had the Notting Hill riots in 1958 yes. similar riots all over the country um, particular issue there seems to be three sort of main issues one being employment one being housing and the other being a sort of sexual envy yeah so it was mostly at this point as well the it wasn't families coming over it was young black men to earn money essentially to, to earn money yeah. to send home and were actively recruited to do absolutely so by the British government. From, from london transport or whatever yeah Exactly. And so often they would end up in relationships with white women, which really stirred up an anger. A certain type of white man. white men, yeah. a certain type of white man. Yeah, yeah. Um, Oswald Mosley, who we did an episode about, he uh, yeah. he tried to sort of uh, ride off the back of this racism in Notting Hill, didn't he? Yes, yeah. he did. He, did. Uh, he stood in the um, uh, 59 election. I, I say Notting Hill, a bit different then than it is now. Yes, you have to imagine. in the film. Yes, um. absolutely. <laughs> It would have been a very different film, wouldn't it? Hugh it would have been a very different Richard Curtis film in 1959. <laughs> so as these riots happened and there was this racism bubbling up in Britain, the Tory government responded with the 1962 Commonwealth Immigration Act. And this limited immigration to those who had employment vouchers. So apparently the problem was uh, black immigrants, not the white racists who rioted Obviously, and caused yes. the violence about them. So uh, one of the places where a lot of West Indians had settled was Bristol. I've got two different numbers here from different books that I read. One said there were 3,000 uh, Jamaicans living in Bristol. Another said there were 7,000. Uh, hmm. But anyway, there are a lot of people in the St. Paul's area of Bristol. What's interesting about the St. Paul's area, yeah. it's very much, it got sort of known as a black area, in inverted commas, despite the fact the white population was always bigger. Oh, I didn't realise that, um, yeah. But also, it in the account I read, the the area had started to decline long before immigration it started to decline as the working classes got a bit more money and started moving out of the area yeah. and the reason that black immigrants moved in 
was because there were empty houses. Yeah. Larger houses people had moved out of. So there was a surplus. And so landlords were buying them and renting them to that community. Yes. So the black population very much got the blame for the sort of rundown nature of that area. But all the evidence seems to be that it was run down long before they came. Absolutely. And they were discriminated against in other parts of the city. There would be the infamous signs that would say, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs, uh, which yeah. is, you know, very unfair on all three counts, I would say. I'm offended as yeah. a, a half Irishman, as a dog owner, and on behalf of the black people who probably suffered a bit more than I have done for being an Irishman with just, a dog. Just a bit, John, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There were teddy boys back then in the late 50s who would go out on violent rampages. I think I'd never really understood what a teddy boy was because to me they were just the people who dressed like shawaddy waddy, right? Yeah, That's yeah, but they were boy. at the time, they were, it was a sort of a, a youth cult. So in another age, yeah. it might have been skinheads or another age, it might have been punks. But yeah. there was white working class boys, really, who uh, got themselves into gangs and set out to be violent towards another group of people it wasn't to do with the music no rock and roll comes from black music but of course they're too stupid to know that and of course bristol is significant as well isn't it for you know not only were this new sort of black population there but obviously bristol's Hist built on slavery historically like the, absolutely the wealth of historically bristol yeah is all from slavery and you know streets and statues honoring slave traders obviously earlier this year there was the statue of Colston chucked in the harbour. Hurrah! Hurrah! <laughs> we don't contone violence against property on this podcast unless it's, you know, you happen to be passing the statue of a racist slave owner. You know, feel free to chuck that I, in the I just drink. want to say, I absolutely do condone I it. I do as well. 100% do condone it. But anyway, the Bristol Omnibus Company, which was actually state-owned, this is the era of nationalisation, it had a policy of not employing black or Asian bus drivers in Bristol, or what they called coloured back then. So it wasn't just being a bus driver, you couldn't be a policeman, you couldn't be a fireman either. They're, no, they're, black people faced discrimination right across the board. But the buses were chosen as the background for a reason. The book I read for this, Angela, was Memoirs of a Black Englishman by Paul Stevenson. And he was a young man very much at the centre of this. And he was inspired by the uh, Montgomery bus boycott eight years earlier. So I said we'd go back a little bit to the 50s. Do you know anything about the Montgomery bus boycott? Yeah, well, obviously the Montgomery bus boycott everybody pretty much knows about or knows a bit about Rosa Parks mm -hmm. so in Montgomery 80% of bus users were black yeah. right which is a very different situation to Bristol yeah and what would happen is there was segregation on the bus so blacks had to sit at the back whites at the front and in Montgomery the whites filled the middle seats from front to back yeah. and blacks filled seats from back to front yeah so eventually they would meet in the middle Yes. And when they meet in the middle, what was happened is if another black person got on the bus, they were required to stand. And if another white person got on the bus, yes. then the person in the nearest black row to the middle would have to stand to make way for the white person. So the white rows could move back as far as they needed to go. To sit down, yeah. And to sit down. I mean, it sounds so absolutely mad, doesn't it, yeah, talking about it? Yeah, I know, it? I know, but that's how it was. And so what happened, Rosa Parks, she refused to give up her seat for a white person. She was sitting in the first row of the middle section. Yes. Now, often what would happen when boarding the buses in Montgomery yeah. is black people would have to pay the driver at the front of the bus yeah. then get off the bus and re-enter the bus through a separate door at the back. Wow. So they couldn't walk through where the whites were wow. sitting. They had to go around the back. So what would often happen is they would pay the driver and as they were walking around to the back, the bus would just drive off. Wow, that's terrible. And leave them. So take their money. A white driver, obviously, yeah. yeah. White driver, yeah, obviously, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
So this had happened to Rosa Parks in the past. Now, it's worth saying Rosa Parks wasn't the first person to refuse to move on a bus. It had happened earlier on. Yeah. But a 15-year-old girl called Claudette Colvin yeah. had done the same thing. She wasn't chosen to be a poster girl for it because I think she might have been pregnant or something. Yeah. And they were, you know, they decided, Martin Luther King, etc. decided she wasn't the case to get people's attention. Whereas Rosa Parks, when she refused to move, Rosa Parks was a middle-aged, um, respectable Church, professional woman. God-fearing yeah, yeah. professional woman, right? Yeah. So they decided after that happened, that was the moment to launch the boycott campaign. They organised carpools, didn't they? They had collections for... Yeah. They had all around America, they collected for new shoes for the black people of Montgomery because they were wearing out their shoes, having to walk to work and everything. And because it was damaging local businesses, uh, Martin Luther King was arrested and imprisoned. Yeah. But he threw this bus boycott that he gained national attention. It should be said... He was a little reluctant to get involved at first. He was persuaded mm. uh, to get involved in the bus boycott. Preachers were always taught to be a Christian and all the Republicans at the time said, well, why is the church getting involved in this political thing? It doesn't bother them now, the Republican Christians. But back then, yeah. that was a big deal. King was arrested and imprisoned. He got national attention. And after a year, the US Supreme Court ruled that segregation was illegal. Browder versus Gale. That's right. Yes, there was a violent backlash, but it was a famous victory reported around the world. Mm. But this was seen by, you know, black people in Britain looking on at this. It should be said that Britain was a very different situation, of course. In USA, segregation had been enshrined in the South in law by the Supreme Court in 1896, Plessy v. Ferguson, which is about the worst ruling the US Supreme Court has ever laid down it's a, it sort of endorsed the separate but equal doctrine uh that was developed to ensure they were separate and unequal of course in britain discrimination was not admitted it wasn't enshrined in law like in america it was embarrassing they sort of did it mm. but didn't say why they were doing it uh which is very yeah. much a british way of doing things so on the archive actually if you go on youtube you can see people talking about the bristol bus boycott and you can hear you know white locals in bristol saying well i wouldn't feel safe with a black bus crew or what about if a woman was on the bus on her own at night you know there's this sort of racist assumptions yes. about what a black driver it might is do. true isn't it john that all rapists and murderers that there's ever been in this country have been non-white i know it's incredible isn't it and yes. uh, uh yes when uh, reporters questioned the bus company about the boycott the general manager a man called ian patey said the advent of colored crews would mean a gradual falling off of white staff it's true that london transport employ a large colored staff but you won't get a white man in london to admit it but which of them will join a service where they may find themselves working under a coloured foreman? I understand that in London, coloured men have become arrogant and rude after they've been employed for a few months. So this is what they were up against. This is the attitude of the racists in Britain in the 1960s. And and just the thought of being managed by someone of colour was so unthinkable, yeah. wasn't it? That yeah. you would have someone rise above you as but a they, white I mean, the word Regardless of their used, abilities, there's absolutely no way a black person would be able to, to trump a white person in how could that possibly be allowed to happen? Well, the, the really, uh, you know, uh, later in the decade, the famous racist speech from Enoch Powell said, if it carries on like this, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. And that was the... The image that they were so terrified of, the idea of um, basically doing to white people what black people had endured for centuries. The racism was across the board. You know, though in Britain, black people were descendants of slaves, the racism in British society was a lot less overt and a lot less violent, it should be said. Mm. 
Nevertheless, it was there. You know, you it can... wasn't not violent, but it was a lot less violent. Yeah, it wasn't sort of like it didn't have lynchings. It didn't have, and, yeah, it didn't have. It wasn't as murderous know. as it was in the American yeah. South. There was there were the Teddy Boys and the and then the and the covert violence of keeping people in poverty. Um, yeah. But they saw this boycott over in America and what it had done. And so Paul Stevenson and some of the other guys, young men of Bristol, decided that that would be the way to make a stand and organise a boycott of the buses in Bristol where the majority of people were white, but they would launch this boycott and see what happened. That might be a good place to take a quick break while we change buses due to a shortage of drivers. And, uh, and <laughs> Well, it's their own fault there's a shortage of drivers, exactly. John. They didn't employ any black yeah. ones. And then we'll come back and um, see how the boycott gets on. Welcome back to We Are History. We're talking about the Bristol bus boycott in 1963, the year of the Perfumo scandal, the Kennedy assassination, the Beatles. A lot was going on, but in Bristol... It was a busy year. In Bristol, if you were a black person, you could not get a job that was not low paid, low status, low skilled. And a group of people decided to do something about it and organise a boycott of the buses in... What was then Somerset? The word boycott goes back to Ireland in the 1870s, 1880s. It, was the, it comes from the Irish National Land League. They got local farm labourers to refuse the harvest of crops of Captain Boycott. And they left, oh. it, they left him, his stuff out to rot and loads of unionists went down there to uh, do his crops. But yeah, uh, Captain Charles Boycott, they said, God, we're going to Captain Charles you. Oh, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> no, they were going to, they kept saying they're going to ostracize him. And they said they, they sort of decide the, decided they needed a word because ostracized was so mm. hard for the working people to get their tongues around. So they said, we're going to boycott him. We're going to organize a boycott of boycott. And uh, the word stuck. And now it's a word in Russian, it's a word in French, and it's, uh, it's all around the world. And nothing to do with Jeffrey Boycott. Nothing to do with the same family. Maybe it's the same family. It's not a common name, is it? A hundred years later in Bristol, Ian Patey, who I mentioned, was the general manager of the Bristol bus company in Bristol. He claimed that hiring black labour would downgrade the job and convince white staff to seek work elsewhere. So a couple of young chaps called Owen Henry and Roy Hackett formed the West Indian Development Council to deal specifically with racial discrimination. I think they'd been frustrated by the older... West Indian Association, which was quite... Well, the West Indian Association, yeah, that was more sort of to do with socialising and and sort of bringing people together, wasn't it? It wasn't really politically It was connected with the church and all that. But he did pull the two organisations together, but he he needed a focus. Paul Stevenson, who I mentioned earlier, whose book I read, he was looking for a focus for their campaign, like Rosa Parks had been. And he met a guy called Guy Bailey, who was 18, come over from Jamaica, amazed by Britain's double-decker buses, would love to have been a driver... And he, he was uh, going to apply for a job at the Bristol Bus Company. Paul Stevenson's a very interesting man, isn't he? Because he wasn't Caribbean. He was born in Britain. His father was West African and his mother was British. So he was mixed race. Yes. And his grandmother, his maternal grandmother, actually was a famous West End actress in the 1920s. Fantastic. Edie Johnson. Wow. Was. Yeah. So he'd been born in London. Yeah. And he had come to Bristol as a youth support worker hadn't yeah. he? he was he worked with young black people in london and he'd moved to work with young black people in the st paul's area that's right and this guy bailey who you say this 18 year old from jamaica he was a student on one of the night classes that paul stevenson organized for right. young black men in the area yeah and like you say he, this guy wanted to work on the buses he'd been told 
you know, back home, that that's what you could come and do. Yes. And obviously he was stonewalled for it. So um, yeah. Paul Stevenson saw him as, as, a, as, a, like as, a, as say, a poster a figure sort for it. Of yeah. poster figure yeah. for it. And uh, Paul Stevenson had been made sort of a spokesperson for this West Indian Development Council because he sounded British and because he, he'd also, you know, dealt with this stuff a lot in London. He, he just sort of, I think they felt he was a bit more... Middle class, I think, is um, the word we're looking middle for. Middle class. Yeah, 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 yeah or British, as you say. So yeah. that he would communicate with the people they were coming up against in the council or whatever in a way that maybe they weren't able to at that time. Yes, I mean, one thing I'll say from reading his uh, memoir, which is an interesting read, is that as me as a white man, I always just think that racism is this problem that's out there and it's like constant. But he, he talks about feeling it grow in Bristol. You know, so these mm. things like racism and I presume misogyny as well they can be given encouragement by the authorities or they can be allowed to fester or, or get worse and he could feel it getting worse and that's I think why he felt uh, he had to do something to try and push back against it so you know they got together and the activists called a press conference and these are young men in their 20s remember they're not the senior figures young of, black men in their young, 20s young black men in their 20s they're not the senior figures of the church of Bristol or whatever uh, yeah. or, the, or the black churches or anything like that they're just young black activists and they announced a boycott uh, they knew they lacked the numbers in Bristol to make an economic impact, but they thought we're going to we're going to announce this and just sort of see what happens. Mm -hmm. So what they did, Paul Stevenson had lobbied MPs, and one of which was a young Anthony Wedgwood Ben, yes, um, who was the MP for Bristol South East, yes. And they marched with student groups. Yeah, well, um, the students supported them, which was a big deal to get that support. They the white did. students, you know. They did. And particularly, you know, student groups from well, the obvious places, CND groups. Yep. And there was a campaign against racial discrimination, the labour groups and things like that from students. So a stu about 100 students marched to the bus station and to the Transport and General Workers Union HQ at Transport House yes. um, in support of the boycott. Tony Benn, like I said, was a supporter of it. His quote was, I shall stay off the buses even if I have to find a bike. <laughs> so, you know, he was willing to make real sacrifices, John, because I'm I mean, pretty uh, sure Tony Benn went everywhere by bus up to that point. Um, uh, yeah, and it, and uh, he got the support of Harold Wilson as well, who was the leader of the Labour he Party, meant... who'd just become leader of the Labour Party, actually, and he made a speech mm. at an anti-apartheid demo mentioned cited bristol as our own version of apartheid yeah. which was great yeah. great support to these young activists what is really interesting though is it wasn't a straight left right issue absolutely was it because no. the it was often trade unions that upheld these color bars yes so it had been a union ballot of workers in 1955 in bristol that had upheld this color bar yeah against and it was not not, un Brit uh, not uncommon black Bus drivers, and and what's interesting as well is that that it was the passenger group voted to boycott the uh, black drivers of the buses. However, the maintenance group of the same union didn't, so they were able to get jobs in the garage and right. you know, non-customer facing jobs, as it wow. were. So there was such a kind of hypocrisy in it as well, wasn't there? Because you had these people who were vocally anti-apartheid that was happening in South Africa. Yes, they were passing resolutions um, about South Africa. You the know, and Transport and General Workers Union were like, well, we oppose the racism of South Africa. And meanwhile, their local members in Bristol... On our doorstep, yeah, we'll vote it, they were voting you against, know, into yeah. constitutions. So. It's amazing. So, <laughs> so there was a real sort of... I mean, it wasn't um, just... Uh, it happened in West Bromwich as well. In, uh, they, mm, they'd object... Coventry, I believe. They'd all ob objected to black conductors. Uh, buses, yeah. not orchestras. I don't know if they might have right. orchestras. <laughs> Different thing completely. Uh, but what was great was the local paper in Bristol was quick to point out this hypocrisy and was sort of putting them on the 
the spot and pointing out there were black bus crews in London, Birmingham, Manchester, and even nearby Bath. But as you say, the origin of the colour bar was with the Transport and General Workers uh, Union. And now there was a sort of uh, ugly collusion between management and unions to Mm. keep the status quo. Uh, They got a black member uh, of the union to sign a statement calling for negotiation and uh, they claim that Stevenson was causing potential harm to the city's black and Asian populations. And the sort of war of words in the local media potted up. And then they got personal about uh, Stevenson. The, the regional secretary of the TGWU, Ron Nethercott, launched an attack on Stevenson in the Daily Herald, which was a good lefty paper in those days, calling him dishonest and irresponsible. And that's led to a libel case in the High Court, which awarded Stevenson damages and costs in December 63. Uh, so yeah, that, so it was yeah, it was, it was it was tough. These were young black men. They were you know they didn't necessarily have the support of the whole community. They were up against this army of yeah. you know older white men who are just discrediting them, just saying this action group's got no authority. They yeah. who are they? You know, coming here and yeah. So it was a really hard fought things. They did have there was a local curate, wasn't there? Andrew Hake, I think his name was, right. who was attached to the Bishop of Bristol Industrial Mission. Okay. Um, who was sort of trying to speak for them a bit. And I know the Council of Churches in Bristol launched a, <laughs> a mediation attempt. Yes. Um, what was it they said? Uh oh um yeah, I've got it written down here. We seriously regret yeah. that what may prove an extended racial conflict arising from this issue has apparently been deliberately created by a small group of West Indians professing to be representative. We also deplore the apparent fact that social and economic fears on the part of some white people should have placed the Bristol Bus Company in a position where it is most difficult to fulfil the Christian ideal of race relations. So the church has basically stabbed the activists in the back, saying that they're causing conflict by minding about their racism. If you just kept quiet, then nobody would be cross with you. Stop causing trouble by minding about racism. What was great was there was uh, a little bit of a celebrity who got involved. Uh, Mm. Sir Leary Constantine. Not so famous now, but back then he was quite a big deal. The famous uh, West Indian cricketer, and then he became the High Commissioner for Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, He started to campaign on behalf of these guys, which was um, outside his diplomatic purview. It's a good word, isn't it? Purview. It is, John. I mean, you've smelt it wrong. Have I? How do I spell purview? How do I spell purview? It looks nice it's like a that. P-U-R-V-I-E-W. Is it purview? But, you oh, know, okay. well, I knew what you meant, John, and that's all it counts. But he, he, uh, <laughs> he, they tried to get the West Indies cricket team to publicly support the boycott, but they didn't want to get all political. But Saliri used his connections and he met with the leaders of the TGWU and the Lord Mayor of Bristol and the parent company, and he persuaded them to send officials and talk with the union. And negotiations went on for months. So meanwhile, campaigners had upped the ante by blocking the route of buses with protests. Plenty of white people were supporting the boycott as well. So It's worth saying the difference between this and Montgomery largely is that there weren't many black people that used the buses. Quite. So it was mostly white people yeah. that used the buses. Yeah. So, you know, they needed them on side to... Yeah, uh, but it was getting national attention. It was in the papers and it was, mm. you know, it was, it was a hard thing to stand up for. The organisers were getting a lot of personal flack. They were being told they weren't representative of the black community, which is a very hard thing to measure anyway. But after 60 days of coverage and back and forth in the papers and some national attention, on the 27th of August, 1963, a mass meeting of 500 bus workers voted to end the colour bar, which uh, is sort of amazing. And the front page of the Bristol paper said yes to coloured crews. And that was the very same day that Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech in Washington. 
So uh, wow, so, a bit of synchronicity. Yeah, a bit there. of a uh, perfect timing from them. And three weeks later, a Sikh became Bristol's first non-white bus driver, which is fantastic. Rugby a Singh. Fantastic. His name. He ran over a bus queue, killing forty old ladies, which was a shame. <laughs> No, he didn't. John. He didn't really. That would have been a big setback for the campaign. <laughs> um, uh, a few more Asians and Jamaicans got jobs in the following days. And um, uh, it yeah, didn't in, stop there. There were repercussions. Yeah, in 1965, the new Labour government introduced the Race Relations Act, uh, which made racial discrimination unlawful in public places. Still do it at home, you know. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> well, in- well, it was quite limited, actually. And they had a majority, yeah. <laughs> they had a majority of four, that government. So they were... They were pretty limited. When they got their big majority in 66, they extended it. So that would be 1968. They extended it to employment and housing. Employment and housing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's fair to say that the Bristol bus boycott had done uh, quite a lot to put this issue on the national agenda. In the way Montgomery had in America. Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, it's an interesting example of American campaigns influencing Britain. Mm. I mean, uh, sort of repeated yeah. with the removal of the statue of Edward Coulson in Bristol. That was inspired by the Black Lives Matter in, in America, yeah. which had a massive, massive impact in the UK. Yeah. Football players here still taking the knee. Yes. Um, because that's not something that gets you killed here. No, I know. I mean, it's interesting. Oh. We, we don't have the American problem of regular murder of black people by the police. We have harassment. Yeah. Yes. And we have racism. Yes. Yeah. But I actually wonder... Well, our police don't have guns, though. No, I know. This is a factor. And we don't have the whole gun, yes. gun culture. But, yeah. but I do think I'm fascinated by how big Me Too and Black Lives Matter were in this country off the back of what happened in America. And I wondered if mm. something like Harvey Weinstein had happened in uh, the British film industry or something like uh, uh, George Floyd had happened in the UK, whether it would have had the same protest in Britain without first mm. having the sort of tidal wave of sort of uh, protests that we saw from America. I think possibly not because, I, well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because there has been instance of filmed incidents of yeah. racial attacks by police on British Yeah, I, people, I, the point so... I'm making, I suppose, I think we're so in the shadow of American culture now mm. that uh, it takes an outrage in America to cause outrage in Britain. And if, the, if an outrage like that happened here, I don't think we would have responded with quite the same energy that we sort mm. of, uh, we felt we were in the wake of in, in, in the United States. It's a minor point, but it's like, just yeah. a, I'm just, I find it curious that. What if it's just a numbers thing as yeah. well, you know, just being, I don't know. It's interesting. Although, of course, I suppose, you know, it does happen. And Mark Duggan killed in 2011, precipitating the, the London riots. But I suppose the, the shocking thing about that was how rare it is. But it does still happen and the police are capable of it here. But it seems so. Uh, every day in America, that's what's so shocking. Stevenson himself, back in the 60s, he continued to campaign and he became a bit of a cause celeb because there were there were pubs where in Bristol where you wouldn't get served. So he decided to go into this uh, Bristol pub and ask to order a half pint of bitter. And they just put it on the bathroom and said, when you drank that, just leave. And he wouldn't. And they made up all this stuff about him. And basically four police vans turned up and they they all like saw the, no, sort of eight different policemen wrote different versions of uh, what he'd said, how rude he'd been, how he'd fought, put up a struggle. And all he'd done was ask for a Yeah, all of, of it was rubbish, but there was an old Irishman in the pub who'd witnessed all of this, and he said, this yeah. is all true. Everything Stevenson says is true. Everything the police are saying yeah. is not true. The Daily Express had on the cover, the man who refused to say please for his beer, which is they're trying to make out he was rude and he was aggressive. It's mad. The Bristol Evening Post ran the story with the headline, West Indian leader made a fool of himself. Wow. And, you know... It's mad, isn't it? I know, but finally, finally... Uh, in his old age, Paul Stevenson got an OBE in 2009, as did uh, Bailey and Hackett, who were involved. 
And in 2013, Unite, the union, which is the successor to the Transport and General Workers, they issued a formal apology for the union's position back in the 60s. Uh, and he's still alive, isn't he, Paul Stevenson? And he wrote the book you mentioned, The Memoirs of a Black Englishman. I hope, I hope somebody points this podcast out to him. Uh, yeah, he published that. And um, and maybe and there's been suggestions that his statue might be an appropriate one to replace Colston. Uh, you know, take mm. down a slave owner and put up somebody who campaigned for something good and equality and, yeah. and campaigned. And really change things. And really, and really change and things. Particularly in Bristol, you know, and it started in Bristol. Yeah, I think but to, 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 to precipitate the, uh, you know, the uh, change in... The law, which came under mm. Harold Wilson's government in 65 and 68, I think we could raise a glass to Paul Stevenson. And it shows you that small campaigns can really make a difference, you know, when you've got right on your side and the courage to see it through. You had some bit of luck with the cricketer helping him out and yeah. Tony Benn and Harold Wilson. But, you know, he approached it. He yeah. did the lobbying. Yeah. He did the, you know... Yeah. So yeah, but you never know. Paul Botang was a was a young student in Bristol at that point, and, oh, uh, really? and he would end up being the first black... Uh, minister in the British government. There's a great sort of uh, symmetry to that as well, I think, that he started out campaigning in Britain's first racial political campaign and ended up being the first black lawmaker. So well done, Paul Stevenson. Well done, campaigners. Uh, it's a short one this week, but uh, yep. we had to get it in quickly before Black History Month ended. Keep sending us your suggestions. Please do. Drip us a, drip us? Drip, drip us a tweet, drip, John. Drop, drop, us a, drop us a line. Drop us a tweet. Oh, yeah. God, I can't speak. In it. At We Are History Pods. And not, John, don't tweet the band at oh We Are God, History. Oh, my God, there's a there's like a 15-year-old <laughs> band that's got about eight tweets and hasn't tweeted since 2010. And I keep putting their name up on Twitter. <laughs> so very embarrassing. Thanks for your reviews. Thanks for your suggestions. We had loads of nice feedback. We'll keep putting them out. And um, next week, we're back in the British Isles. Or are we? we are, well, or are we, right. John? Mm, leave that out there. <laughs> okay. Right. Thanks for listening. <laughs> See you next Catch time. You next time.